And I know that I have to find a language that opens up our brain. I mean, so it's interesting to hit the brain. <laughs> I mean, because that can change the way you are looking at both yourself, at the ideas about life, the ideas about the way we are living, the ideas about beauty and ugliness, about art. That was Mikael Kvium, and this is Nordic Portraits. Mikael Kviem is an internationally renowned visual artist, perhaps best known for his illustrations and paintings, depicting grotesque characters and exploring uncomfortable yet universal themes. For over four decades, Mikael has worked with painting, drawing, sculpture and video, garnering praise from critics and peers alike, and resulting in him receiving a number of prestigious awards, including the Eckersbär Medal and the Order of Danapol. Mikael, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Mikael, I wondered if we could start by going all the way back to your childhood in the 1960s, where you were living with your family in the provincial city of Horsens. And whilst watching the only television channel on offer in Denmark, you were first introduced to art and, by extension, artists. I wondered what you remember of that time and why this program captured your imagination. First of all, I discovered that by... These programs uh, with the um, artists from around the world, that uh, was a way out of boredom, <laughs> simply. I mean, um, what I saw in my childhood, in the beginning of my childhood, was a very grey world. It was after the Second World War, people were poor and working hard. It was like grey, grey, grey. I don't remember any sunny days uh, at all until we started the 60s. And then, of course, my family should put themselves together and buy a TV first. <laughs> But uh, I saw programs suddenly that inspired me extremely. It was like the first door that I wanted to really enter. I mean, it could be crystal, for instance, covered in mountains, um, lakes, whatever. But just the idea that uh, there was an adult doing something that wasn't just hard work, that was also filled up with philosophy, questions. I mean, it, it was really opening my eyes to something that could be different, some other ways human beings could be thinking and living. So, of course, I was very curious about what this one program could offer me in the future. I remember Yves Klein, very strange for a young boy to see a man using a body to paint with, And uh, I like that mix of doing something that, in one sense, didn't make sense. And because it didn't make sense, it made sense to me. <laughs> you had a fairly tumultuous childhood. You grew up in a staunchly Catholic family. You were one of eight children. Yeah. And your mother had severe health complications during your birth, which you've mentioned in the past had a very negative impact on your relationship with her. How have you reflected on that over the years? In fact, you don't reflect on that when you're a child because you haven't tried anything but that. So uh, that was the natural world for me. I think that came uh, a lot later when suddenly I could see 
my life and our childhood from from outside and i could see that wow it was a different family in many ways both in good and in bad my parents were very intelligent i mean uh, they had a lot of interests they were reading a lot discussing a lot making a lot of fun so it wasn't just a hell on earth it was complicated but it was also complicated simply because we were that many children i mean the first time ever i was absolutely alone was in fact when i started studying at the art academy in copenhagen where i moved to copenhagen and in the beginning it was pretty scary to be totally alone that was the first time suddenly i was alone and after a while oh my god i enjoyed that <laughs> What was your relationship like with your mother then as a child? Very complicated. Um simply because probably she also had very mixed feelings about me whether she wanted it or not uh, because I was a wild kid. <laughs> it didn't help. But she had her periods where she was very nervous and for sure influenced all of us with her very bad nerves and um all her fear for everything. that still i think influenced me at least it learned me really to have open eyes for a lot of things that probably normal raised people don't need to look at do you think that you are an anxious person as a result of that yeah I'm, somehow i am somehow i am um but it also can be used as a tool because i I think my point of view is very different. But that also made my eyes turn towards complicated things in life that for instance in the 70s and the 80s wasn't that common. I mean, I really saw how bad it went with pollution, how bad it went with the way we were living, how complicated it is to look at the world as a whole divided up in the very rich west for instance and the rest because at the moment we are talking so much about these days of slavery but what is it we are doing today i mean it's only fun to be rich if others are poor <laughs> that's a scary part of it and that unique point of view that we see through your art one element that i'm really interested in is how you constantly explore themes of ugliness and beauty. I know in the past you've mentioned that you see ugliness and beauty as close companions. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on that? But it is you can't tear it apart simply because uh, you couldn't define the beauty if there wasn't an opposite position and you can't define the ugly. And then it becomes complicated because what is it that makes something beautiful? What is it that makes us think that other stuff are ugly? and as a person we can also be defined as ugly or beauty but not throughout all the life it changes all the time and it also changes of course uh, of style of ideas of age of the way we are living so it is like disappearing in your hands if you really have to grip it the beauty i mean i think that everyone that puts themselves together and try to make a piece of art seriously is trying to do something very beautiful in that sense i'm 100% sure nobody's trying to do something very ugly of course they want to do it right they want to do it complicated in the good way they want to make it done so nobody has probably done it that way before and that's beautiful both the act and um the result even though it's a bad result it can still be a beautiful act
so when people say, oh my God, you're making ugly paintings, I say, I'm not making ugly paintings. I can probably, in your eyes, work with figures that is ugly. And then you say, my paintings are ugly. But in that sense, you're wrong. I'm not ugly. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like you take any offense by that response. What are you looking for as a reaction when you release your work? First of all, I want people, in fact, to react because they have seen it. The worst is when they doesn't see it at all. Because then you probably do something that's too close to reality because reality we don't see. We don't see reality at all in our daily life. It is pretty scary how much our brain is separating reality from those few informations we let in. And that can be very convenient what we let in. So we can live in peace, so we don't have to think, so we don't have to have problems, we don't have to be worried. But everyone knows, coming, for instance, to a new city, the first couple of days, my God, you see everything. The handles of the doors, the towers, the windows, the way the streets are, the people, the clothing, the restaurants, everything. And then it grays up. <laughs> And you don't see anything. Then you come back home and for one and a half day, probably you say, oh my God, Copenhagen is in fact a very nice city too. <laughs> and then it becomes gray again. And in the same way, I'm trying as best as I can to use that knowledge to try to make some kind of simple act visible. But this act can probably be gripping something much bigger from reality. And I know that I have to find a language that opens up our brain so we, in fact, whether we like it or not, see it in a split second. So I also have to find a language that is easy written. That doesn't mean it's easy understood, but easy written. And then I think that our brain is, in fact, fantastic because it also, if something is kind of coming in, it's stored somewhere and it will be part of you for the rest of your life in bigger or smaller parts. I mean, so it's interesting to hit the brain. <laughs> I mean, because that can change the way you are looking at both yourself, at the ideas about life, the ideas about the way we are living, the ideas about beauty and ugliness, about art. And um, I think the brain is so complicated, but at the same time, I also think somehow it's also very simple. It's made of very, very few uh, informations. We, of course, make new spots with new informations. And then what makes us growing up and being a person is that we start to combine these informations. And I think that the brain very often puts new informations in order down in these boxes. So if we, for instance, have got a box with some very scary informations from the beginning, maybe way before we knew that something was happening around us, we'll probably the rest of our life put new information that kind of have the same feeling, the same place in the brain. So the interesting as a thinking adult is, in fact, to dare to go into these boxes, not let them rule without control, but let them come out and to look. And that has been some kind of work that I've been doing while I'm working with my paintings or whatever I've been doing. It means that because I'm the first audience, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course, so while doing something, I certainly can react. And uh, I'm pretty sure that people will react more or less the same way as I'm doing. Probably not as strong or maybe stronger, but 
I think we recognize more or less the same things. And then it's up to the person what their experience is to kind of deal with that information. But as an artist, I'm looking at something coming up in front of my eyes. And very often I've got some kind of dizzy idea or dizzy sketch. And then suddenly something happens that uh, is out of my control and probably tricks me <laughs> in a very interesting way. That can be suddenly that I decide my idea is not good enough for this ask me to do something totally different and I try to do that and very often that's right and the best thing is of course when I think hmm in fact this is a ridiculous thing but how come it finds its way into my subconscious sometimes I can feel it that can be a very stupid act very often it's because it's not a normal act it's probably an act we do every time let's say it's a person I paint with a stupid colored sock in his hand, and that's the only piece of clothes. I mean, we probably every morning stand with our sock, and nobody, nobody is aware that we are standing with a sock like that. But to put it out and to make a person like it is an act of control, like a necessary act, suddenly it becomes both so absurd and so over-visual, And very often, if I, for instance, put out an image like that on Instagram, I get these very strange reactions. People say, oh my God, that's me this morning. I remember I couldn't find the other sock, you know. And suddenly it grips into that subconscious we are sleeping in every <laughs> every day. And uh, that can be interesting because for human beings, I think we are throwing away such a lot of good time by being lazy mentally lazy it doesn't mean that we have to work all the time but we're lazy simply because that's our nature too i mean if we're not hungry we don't go on hunt and that's the same with our brain today we are having music in our ears 24 hours a day we have got phones calling every time we are sitting in the waiting room at the doctor i mean everyone around us plus ourselves is sitting with our phones reading stupid news from some channels without really reading them it's simply kind of a laziness because we have forgotten everything we are reading 10 minutes later how do you then keep yourself personally open to the uncomfortable parts of your brain huh. often it's my brain <laughs> that is keeping me uncomfortable <laughs> uh, yeah but of course as an artist you have always got the basic problem that you have to stay sharp And that's very hard, especially after 40 years of work, because, uh, I mean, you also become lazy in a way there, because a lot of things you've done before. So you say, nah, I don't want that anymore. No, I don't want that anymore. This is not interesting anymore. Without, in fact, finding the direct way out of that position. I've just had more or less a half a year where I almost wasn't in my studio. I tried to force myself in, and I was almost having fear. I mean, stepping into the studio, fear of not being good enough, fear of not being tense enough, fear of being too tense. Uh, so that was pretty scary. I've had some periods of that. And normally I move country or move place, and we couldn't do it due to the um, pandemic. So in the end of the day, I felt like I was in prison. Normally, I don't feel imprisoned in my studio, and suddenly the studio changed. 
So um, that was a scary thing. And in fact, when it was at the worst, I wasn't 100% sure that I would come back ever. So I was really planning, all right, what the fuck am I then going to do? I mean, I wouldn't even be a good truck driver because I'm awful to fight my way. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's part of it too. I think it's only the amateurs <laughs> that really enjoy doing art. <laughs> How did you push through that, Miko? In fact, I don't know. Uh, I forced myself in some situations that was very uncomfortable in the beginning. But then I tried to ch change my mindset, saying, okay, let's go over in the studio and make some very bad shit works. <laughs> that released some kind of tenseness. And very often I've been talking with writers that is saying, oh, I can't write at the moment. I said, of course you can write. You can make a whole piece of paper with A's. And after that, you can make with B's. That is still writing. I could just make a, a monochrome surface or I could do something really rubbish. And I tried to do that for some days. And then I uh, thought, yeah, it's not that bad to be here. I got surprised that, in fact, it was pleasant to stay in the studio again because it's it's been my room, my best room for so many years to be in the studio. And even though it can be many days without any progress at all, when it comes, it comes, and then it's better than drugs. I mean, uh, because you get surprised yourself. So I decided, okay, why don't I just stop where I ended to take up some themes? So I was sitting for a whole day looking at the last couple of years' sketches. And so looking from it from a kind of distance, uh, it was like, okay, um, I can understand why I kind of got blocked here because that was probably simply the situation more than, in fact, the ideas. Or it was simply because I was in a big depression, in fact. Mentally putting out in the corner of myself, of the situation, of everything. And the person that's going into a deep depression don't see it. Even when others say, are you sure you're not having a depression or something like that? No, it's just the world that's so awful with all the paintings. That's so awful. All the other artists are so awful. <laughs> I've heard you describe working in your studio, Mikkel, as yourself constantly asking and answering questions along the way. Can you explain what you mean by that? But I think whatever you do as an artist, it is to put some questions out in the air and you get some answers. It's not answers in the normal sense that it makes sense, probably. But you get some answers. Probably the answer can be a very cold shoulder. <laughs> and the answer can be that you are getting happy in a strange way. The answer can be that you're getting lazy. And that's probably because your question was uh, too stupid. Because you, if you keep on putting some answers. What if I do that? What if I work with these ideas? When it becomes interesting, you get the answer. Because then you are working curiously. Do you ever find that you've finished a piece and realized that you've maybe created something that answers its own question and therefore it's unsuccessful? Oh yeah, often. Often. And then I have to decide, can I do something about it? Can I simply drop it? I mean, I'm dropping a lot of paintings, simply overpaint them. 
But often I'm really trying to find the escape route. What can I do? What is it that makes it to one-to-one? Because sometimes I make things that is very one-to-one, but it's one-to-one in a sense. So it itself has got some kind of sphere that makes you think about something else. So it's not that simple. And then you have to go through your whole mental measurements. Is this only because you are in such a bad mood today that the painting is so awful and one-dimensional and have to be painted over? Then you probably should wait to one day where you are probably in the other part of the scale and you're probably too happy. And if you still think, nah, it's very well painted. It's, uh, in fact, a lot of work. But you were right. You can't find any solutions, so destroy it. And when you do it, in fact, it's very often a very releasing feeling. It's like all that energy that ended in a negative painting, it was locked up, it's uh, freed. So when you have done it, you'll never think, oh my God, did I really overpaint that painting? That was a lot of work I destroyed right now. I never had that feeling. Hmm. In 2013, Peter Klitgaard produced a documentary about your life and work in the studio. I just wondered when you were watching that back, seeing yourself from the outside, what did you observe that caught your attention, seeing your own artistic process? (laughs) I haven't hardly seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's very rare I read reviews. I heard Bob Dylan recently in an interview saying some very, very nice thing. He said, well... If I have to, I'll be Bob Dylan. The rest of the time, I just want to be myself, trying to be myself. (laughs) So it's more like that because, I mean, getting too much aware of you as a person or as an artist, that confuses you too because then it's other person's version of you that suddenly is filling up your brain. And that means that there's a disharmony of what you're feeling and what you're told to be feeling or to be and um, then you have to have um, a big clean out (laughs) so throughout the years I've learned not to be too much curious about those things so normally I ask someone else to look at it probably if they say I think you should look at this and decide if that's right or if you like that and it's people that I really trust then I say okay let me see that but I simply can't see it from one end to another. I am throwing up. <laughs> you know, because what I see is like when you're working, I mean, I only see, if I heard this, my bad English. Um, because I still remember how I was thinking, how I was planning to say a split second later. And then I see how limited we are, even in our own language, how limited, how few words, how unprecise we are, even though we are very concentrated to explain things. The brain have got much more balls flying in the air, you know, which direction this could go. And probably, like I talked about earlier, going down into all these rooms of memory and searching for a good answer, combining these things. And in fact... If you see this from outside, that means that if I'm looking at an interview, suddenly I've got an extra link because I can see it from outside. So in that sense, it can be interesting, but not normally nice for me because I only see that I'm limited. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I saw for the first time 
my hand working on the canvas, hand on the brush. And I got so surprised. I haven't seen that ever. Wow. I never seen my hand. I haven't seen the brush. I haven't even seen the thing I am working on. Honestly, because I am seeing what I want. I mean, that's a discussion all the time, what it needs. So I was so afraid after I saw that and uh, I got so surprised, you know, I was almost in shock of seeing that. My God, how do the hand know to do this? Because I don't think that I'm telling the hand to do that at all. I was so afraid that I have ruined my <laughs> my skills by seeing it. But it's, it's still like that. I mean, I don't see what the hand is doing. And if I'm sketching, yeah, I see the drawing, but I also see what's wrong. And in that sense, I'm working, finding a solution, uh, you know. And it's a very good way to transform that sometimes in the way we are looking at life. Our situations, the way we are taking things for granted, for instance, in the Western world or here in Denmark or in Australia or in the United States, because we take a lot of things for granted I mean, uh, as males, for instance, we have seen a lot of those things as females, as whites, as blacks. There's a lot of things we don't see. And I think that's probably the most important thing. That is not to point only at all the others. Hey, there's a lot of things you don't see. But I think it's very important for every human being to, as often as possible, just to make a kind of restart saying, hmm, hmm. There's a lot of things, in fact, that I am doing automatically, thinking automatically, that could be changed, at least be looked at. And then probably that, in a positive way, could change a lot of those irrational things we are doing, all of us. In 2014, you had an exhibition called Fools, and... I find it interesting in the context of this part of the conversation because you were exhibiting over 200 portraits that you'd created over a long period of time, I believe dating back as early as 1991. Yeah. I'm curious then as to how it was for you to assess and assemble this collection, considering that you often look so critically at your own work. How was it to go back and see this evolution of your craft and what did you learn from doing the project? First of all, I didn't want to make a show, but um, because I thought it was like a very strange test in the studio, first of all. And um, they were very nice to do and very nice to test out my access for the bigger paintings, you know, test out my crazy brain sometimes. And I was asked by the former director of the Aras Museum, and he said, you promised me that we could make a big show with this once. So that when he left, he put a piece of paper on the new director's table, reminding him that I had promised that. And then I said, okay, I'll give it a shot one more time, because it's so complicated to show that small. They are very small, these paintings. They are 30 times 30 centimeters. That means they, they, it's tiny paintings. And that museum space is very huge. So I had to find a way to go through it. So I made a kind of show, like walking into the brain through the ear, you know, like uh, walking in these lines in the inner ears. So you ended up in the very center with the first painting, like a lit de parade, passing by all these fools, 
all these idiots like we are. I mean, uh, we probably find all the fools very funny because they look like the neighbor, but the neighbor is probably thinking the same thing. <laughs> they are just looking like us, you know, in some extreme ways. In fact, we were discussing a lot because I didn't want to make more fools at that time because the project was kind of finally finished here with this show. And I was talking with the curator, Pernille Togodinsen, about what is a modern fool, in fact. Oh, my God. It's a selfie. <laughs> it's absolutely a selfie. So we had a project next to that exhibition where people could make a selfie, where I made a lot of, you know, hats and ears and noses and uh, stuff that you could use to make a stupid fool out of yourself because sometimes I, I think that's a... I mean, that's a very important thing to be able to laugh at yourself to laugh at us. And I think that's that's very complicated at the moment because we are getting so politically correct. So we are just pointing out all the others' errors. And uh, uh, that's scary. And in fact, I want it the other way around. Let's find each other in that too, by not being that serious, saying, my God, a part of being a human being is that you are a fool. I mean, we are not even perfect when we are um, in the end of life. I mean, we're probably even more aware of how unperfect you are as a human being. And when people talk about wisdom, I think the only wisdom there is, is that people throughout their life, in fact, realize that we are not perfect, realize that, my God, we are doing so many things wrong because we are living forwards and we have got only some schooling lessons from our parents, from the school, from our friends. And who says that's right? From the situation. I mean, we behave differently if we're poor than if we are very rich. We behave differently if we are under a government that is suppressing you than if you are in a free world. Of course, it doesn't make people right or wrong. It makes all of us unperfect. And I think that's a very, very important thing to know. And we don't change if we don't realize, my God, first of all, first of all, if I can change anything in the beginning, I have to change myself. I have to look at myself. And I also have to accept that I can't be perfect. I can try, but um, I can't be perfect. You mentioned Instagram earlier. Does it concern you, this all-pervasive race to obtaining or rather signaling the perfect look and the perfect life on social media? But it doesn't show perfection. It shows fullness more and more. Jesus, my God, a billion selfies with self-concerned girls making the kiss round mouth, showing themselves from the best angle. Men that is taking photos of their muscles in the fitness center, you know. Jesus, it is just showing the fools in my eyes. And the way people is commenting on serious subjects. I mean, uh, listen to those languages. It's just showing how stupid we are. It's just, I mean, for me, it's a gate into some very scary parts of life. It's the most scary thing that is realizing how awful we are as human beings. And that's a mirror towards your own world. And what a lot of falseness there is in that. Pretending. And um, how little honesty there is in those medias. 
I mean, you don't make photos of your own bread with a piece of cheese on. No, you're showing people photos from a restaurant where you paid a lot of money that is showing your social status. You're not taking selfies with the clothes you are working in the garden with. No, of course. You are pretending that you are living a um, holiday life. The whole world is trying to do that. That was the disaster of Hollywood. They were too successful in selling a lie. Does it surprise you even today how much then we as humans are drawn to distraction? No. Sadly, it's very natural because we are renewed every <laughs> split second with new people that have to learn it all. We are living longer and some kind of knowledge probably comes out of that or maybe we just become cynical. So it means it's a lot of new people trying to do it as good as possible. And in a split second, you are old and cynical and have to die. I mean, uh, that's the nature, like summer and winter. I mean, there'll be a fall just after summer. And um, that's very hard to realize that it just repeats itself. I mean, the stupidness will for sure repeat. But some progress, I mean, we haven't ever, ever, know so much about what we are doing to um, our planet, for instance. It doesn't make that we are um, acting after that, but there is some kind of signs that we are waking up. It goes slowly, probably too slowly, but some kind of awareness, at least, is coming up, and some kind of awareness of the fact that we have to change our lifestyle especially in the younger generations. Jesus, they know it because they have to pay a price. I mean, in the 80s, I was thinking a lot about these subjects. And uh, in the 80s, we didn't see any signs. I thought it would be something in the future that the glaciers would melt. I mean, I, probably there was the first signs, but hell, it has gone so fast. So the tip of the iceberg is not only a tip of the iceberg, it's a very big part of the iceberg. I can see if it's not melted already. I mean, if I have said that in the 80s, people have said, Jesus, it's not going to be in our lifetime. And that was probably the scary thing, that people didn't react on science because you couldn't see it. It wasn't that visual. Mm. You mentioned earlier about the notion of cancel culture and censorship. I wonder for a work like Dog Lover that you released in 1987, where you depict two naked women in a bed making love with a dog. Do you think that could exist today? And would that be received in the same way it was back then? Mm, probably all those that make sex with the animals would accuse me of making fun of them. <laughs> uh, that's probably what would happen because it still exists. It's just one of those taboos that is very, very much taboo. But, I mean, in those days, what surprised me, and the reason why I did it was that they did, in fact, a film pretty early in Denmark, a pornographic film, but it was covered up like it was a serious film about people making love in all different ways, also making love with different elements. And uh, I was in shock, and then I forgot about it. I thought, ah, probably it was just some extreme, and suddenly it wasn't that extreme, because if you went into a bookstore, there was magazines in those days, it was pornographic magazines. There was a lot of magazines printed in four colors every week or every 14 days or every month. And 
So it's not a question about those few that is posing in this um, magazine. Suddenly, I mean, Jesus, it was one of the pieces that, in fact, learned me how much the brain is covering up. Because suddenly I realized there have to be that many people reading these magazines because it's expensive to do these magazines. So I'd have to have a big audience. That was scary because then you could look at all the other magazines and realize, well, that's kind of a public secret. And in fact, I had a competition with my colleague Christian Lemmers in those days who could make the most outrageous painting. And I think that was that was close <laughs> because what are you going to do with it? I mean, if it's a museum having it, you can't hang it up because what about children looking at it? What about the adults? What are they going to tell the kids? I mean, it's only you who end up in a big conflict with your ideas. And in fact, that was interesting also from the point of art, which kind of limits we try to break down. And why do we want to break them down? Probably in that sense, I just wanted to cross it. Because, uh, I mean, first of all, a painting is not reality. It's just a painting. It's not scary at all. It's just a color put onto a piece of clothes. It's a simulacrum. It's fake. I mean, uh, it's not human beings or animals or whatever. It's not trees in there. It's just painting. It's like a piece of music. Uh, on the other hand, you do have some kind of responsibility. Um, I think as an artist, you really have to question yourself. Why do I want to do this? And it doesn't matter if you have got the golden answer. You should have questioned yourself, why did I do this before? And then you probably can tell the audience later on, I don't know, but I found it interesting. That must be enough in a sense. But responsibility is a complicated thing because a lot of responsibility is awareness, knowing what you're doing. And very often as an artist, you should also play with not knowing what you're doing. That means that I think that afterwards you should be aware of what you did and uh, how you feel about it. That can be complicated. What you feel about it, or it can be easy. It doesn't matter, but you should know what you did. I wondered, is that been a tightrope for you between being provocative but then not alienating your audience? Is that an important tension that you have to manage? I never tried to provoke, because if anything provokes, that's reality. Hmm. I mean, I've felt provoked a lot of times, because I, as any other persons in the world, we start up being naive, nice kids. And then we are confronted with a lot of things that is not like we wanted it to be. I grew up in the Cold War, where most nations were exploding bombs, and we had this enormous fear of an atomic war, the Third World War, and it was pretty close. I still remember my parents both sitting crying when Kennedy had his last meeting with Khrushchev, you know, about Cuba. That was a close call. And I didn't understand why they were crying, but I had an idea. So I knew what an atomic war was. That's a very scary thing to know. I don't know when was that, in 63. So that means I was... Eight years old, that's a heavy burden. So in that sense, you are very provoked about This is adult people doing things so stupid. I mean, kids are very <laughs> clever, see things very clear. Hmm. So I never tried to provoke, but um, you can use some of those things from reality that provokes you, uh, themes, 
in a painting. And one of the reasons why I use this very old-fashioned media painting is that it's harmless. It's very harmless. It's not really persons. I mean, it's just paintings. Even how ridiculous people are looking, it's not people. It's a painting that has got an actor, and I see it as actors in my paintings, looking very foolish, that can remind us about reality. I wondered if we could talk briefly about your 2017 exhibition, Circus Europe. It was a hugely successful show, but it really brought into sharp focus questions around Europe's identity and where it's heading in the future. What was the initial idea that sparked that project? First of all, I was asked by the museum, and I wasn't that fond of having a big show. I've had a lot of big shows. And I said, I'll think about it. And then I didn't think about it. (laughs) And then they asked me one more time and asked if they could pass by my studio. Because I think the basic idea was that I should make a kind of retrospective show. I said, I don't want to, because I feel so old every time I do a retrospective (laughs) thing. And um, I said, I don't know if I've got the energy, but if I should do it, I should rather make... A show with new things I could use of my baggage. I mean, take up themes I've been working with before. But to make new works that is reminding us about today. And uh, I mean, there was a lot of things uh, happening in those days, both with refugees coming from Africa, the war down there in Syria, and um, a lot of, like, almost a lot of destruction in the world and a lot of kind of splitting in the world. And I, all the things I've been talking about today, I mean, if I should mean that seriously, I could probably try to make a show that was more than normal one-to-one in that sense that, in fact, I had a meaning about things, or at least I had seen something that is pretty scary about us. That's the reason why I didn't call it Circus World or Circus West, because it probably should have been that. I mean, uh, the Danish newspaper Politik once showed a photo a couple of years ago, I think, from a satellite in the middle of the night. And I think the text was, who forgot to switch off the light? And you could see exactly the limits, who is living very good and who is not. I mean, uh, the whole of the Western world was lit up, and Africa and India, there wasn't that much electric light. So... Like I said before, why don't we start to look at ourselves? And I thought, okay, I am from Denmark. I'm living here most of my time. At least I'm living in Europe, seeing a lot of things in Europe that I don't see (laughs) because it's my daily routine of blindness. So I wanted to look at those things in a bigger perspective. And um, I tried to do that, and I wanted to bring up those very complicated questions if we look at it, because suddenly um, that kind of uh, natural way we feel like we are living suddenly doesn't become that natural. And uh, I'm not to change it, but I could at least try to put something up on the table and say, look at this, look at this. And uh, while doing this show, I mean, uh, we just had the full monty of what happened, you know, suddenly all of Europe filled up with refugees coming on the freeway (laughs) all the way up. And while they were coming, we also saw another highway of very dirty speak, of very nasty thoughts, of very scared us (laughs) 
people <laughs> getting very pale because they were so scared of their position. And uh, I can understand, in a sense, uh, I'm not like that. But uh, I can certainly also understand things in a bigger scale. And I think we should do that, because that's the only way you, we probably can change the mindset of ourselves, at least change our mindset so we can understand what other persons or people are pointing out instead of defending ourselves. I mean, for instance, as a white man, Jesus, my God, we have, we have set the order. We certainly have set the order. And I'm 100% sure if somebody else have set the order, they have done a lot of bad things and a lot of good things. But we can't run away that it was so. And it doesn't become that scary if you just look at it and say, yeah, in fact, um, that's right. And um, we were leading the world when we were, for instance, working out the atomic bomb and the two world wars. We are all, it's all our grandparents and grand-grandparents that has been working that world we are living in today out. We can't run away. And we can't keep on blaming people for what their grandparents did. Uh, that's very complicated. That's the wrong way to do it, I think. From my point of view, we should do it ourselves. We should do it in a dialogue and say, oh my God, I have to dare to think that through, to realize this behavior um, doesn't fit anymore. It probably fit before in the world. It was probably a wrong decision, but they thought it was a good decision. I mean, uh, at least we as human beings can always tell ourselves that what we're doing is good. That's a scary thing. I mean, in America, we are executing people on the death row. They think it's good. A lot of people think this is good to get these people put away. Is it good? I don't know. Hmm. One piece that really stood out from that exhibition was Beach of Plenty, a remarkably large-scale work, where, as the viewer, we're looking out from the vantage point of a beach and across the waters coming in on the waves is a life raft full of refugees. And in the foreground, you have these European tourists standing on the beach, looking almost nonchalant out at the raft, but also looking at each other looking. Yeah. I'm interested in that element of absurdity that you often pick up on in your work. Yeah, that was a very complicated work because suddenly I was working with reality, really reality. I mean, this was going on at the same beach I normally go to when I'm in Spain, in my house in Spain. So, uh, and this was happening and it's still happening every day. I mean, you can find wet clothes in the mountains every morning because that's the first thing you do. That's, I mean, I've seen these scenes on film and videos that is so close to, I didn't see this scene. I was just imagining it because I knew it was happening along that coast. So I simply found some images with these boats and um, composed all the things, it took some photos on the beach and put it together so it could be this white screen beach so you get more or less the feeling that you are on the beach because it fills up your eyes. I mean, the beach of plenty, in fact, it's a beautiful word because it's certainly a different kind of plentiness you are looking at from the two sides if you're coming in as a refugee or if you're laying as a fat tourist, <laughs> western tourist on the beach bathing in the sun. So it was very important I should take some photos on the beach a day with pretty big waves because, in fact, that's the breaking point. That's where 
these two points of view is heading and it should be heading us the same way there as first of all as a question And the way to paint it was complicated because I couldn't use my normal, very sarcastic or ironic style. You can't joke with real people in that sense because then the idea would be different and not the way I wanted it. So in fact, I had to retrospective go back to my very early days on the academy where I was testing out some works with super realistic style, you know, painting after photos and doing it pretty Perfect. And then um, find a kind of level that was somehow, you know, like David Hockney have found a level to reality sometimes. And in fact, it was costly in a way, you know, it's pretty daring to totally change your style in the same show. I also made some installations about the same elements and uh, something that I've been working on since the 80s, you know, some kind of very frightening Bodies, you know, it's not like us, just like a mirror to try to look at us as dangerous bodies. I mean, we find these very strange bodies that is linked together, very scary, alien-like. But in fact, they can't do anything because they are linked with courts. So uh, if they're killing each other, they're killing themselves. And uh, suddenly working with these things, you can look back at yourself and say, my God, I've got a brain that can plan out a murder or some awful things to other people. I've got hands that can do it. I'm a scary body. I'm a fucking scary body. But uh, the whole show, I also used sound. I used an entertainer to welcome people there, shooting a video. I tried to also, in fact, as much as I could, destroy my trademark um, and trying to see art as an act only. But then, of course, you end up realizing that you as a person have got limits. And they can be very frustrating, but sometimes it's probably very good because that makes space to a lot of other persons, both in life, but also on the art scene. I mean, there are artists that can do something totally different than I can do, using different languages. And that makes art double interesting because... Art puts up questions towards each other, too. I mean, that's also something that we use to kind of figure out what we mean about life, what we mean about each other, what we understand about other persons. I mean, we can sit together with a person that hates the music that you love, and you hate the music that that person loves. And in fact, even though that can be frustrating, that is in fact a very big help to getting closer. It sounds crazy, but um, we are getting closer, getting to knowing each other. Just in closing, Mikkel, this strong sense of social conscience that you clearly have, I wondered if you've spent much time reflecting on your Catholic upbringing, with your parents being such devout believers. Yeah. Do you see that demonstration of faith as having been a blessing or a burden in your life? Both, I think. Uh I'm 100% sure it was a blessing for them. And as a child, it was pretty nice to have a God that took care of you. I was pretty sure that that happened. Later on, I wasn't that sure. Being brought up as a Catholic also tells you that there is hell. There is a hell. There is a devil. 
That is so goddamn scary. Because he is as real as God is real and makes God complicated. <laughs> if it only was him, it would have been nice. But nope, and it was abstractly linked up to how you behave. Oh, damn. <laughs> so, so you get a very complicated fear brought into your life. And uh, I'm 100% sure that if my parents had been living today and had just seen the tip of the iceberg of all those things coming up about the Catholic Church, you know, the um, abuse of kids and money, um, oh my God, they would have been so disappointed. My father was really, you know, a righteous man. He was a prosecutor, you know, and uh, he really meant that it was right and wrong. Oh, I don't know how he would have reacted Uh, he was spared for that. Um, and I looked at it, you know, in misbelief in the beginning. I thought, ah, it can't be that much. It can't be that much. Jesus, yes, it can be that much. And I, in fact, did some paintings. I had to have a very big distance to those acts. And in fact, you know, what came up was the worst of it. The worst of it was this lack of confidence that you couldn't trust, lack of trust. My God, you're putting your kids in the hands of somebody that is abusing them. I mean, in the name of God. I mean, we're also killing in the name of God, but uh, that was a scary thing. And of course it came out of um, the idea, is it called celibate in, in English? Celibacy. Yeah. That basically probably is a good idea simply that you can only love god uh, you don't have to have these lusts that follows a normal uh, earthly living but nature is stronger it looks like so i mean when human beings are corrupted and they are liars and they are sinners we are sinners in the catholic way of course priests are too but uh, it was a scary thing But in fact, that follows me. Um, I think you asked if it has some influence, but um, of course, I think that follows even those people that haven't had a Catholic upbringing. I mean, how to define good and evil? That's very complicated. It's like yin-yang. There is some good and bad. At least you have to show some good, because does that person really know what he's doing or she's doing? even though doing some very evil things, and they probably believe they did in the idea of the good and the name of God. So it's complicated, and that you have to struggle with, and you have to fight it inside yourself too. I mean, because that struggle is deep inside yourself. What I'm doing right now, is that only good? Or is it bad too? Um, and I think a lot of young persons have got that conflict Probably it's called something else, but my God, they are twisted. I think in, I mean, they want to have a car, but is that good to have a car? They want to be very politically correct, uh, and then probably out of the back door, something very bad <laughs> sticks out suddenly. And I don't think they call it God and devil <laughs> today. Of course, they don't do it. I don't even think they call it good and bad. They've got other words, but that is... The black and white discussion, <laughs> it certainly is. A few years ago, you painted a portrait of the Queen of Denmark, Donning Magaida. Yeah. 
and she spent a considerable amount of time in your studio. And I'm just, I'm just curious, what does Mikael Kvium and Her Majesty talk about in the downtime together? What did you bond over during that experience? <laughs> Besides of, um, talking about cigarettes, how nice it is to smoke cigarettes. Uh, I, think, I heard you could cut the air with a Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, we had some very, very interesting discussions about art but also about society, uh, what's happening in the world. And Her Majesty is just really a knowing person. And, of course, we also talked about places, where we have been. And, uh, of course, I was uh, so afraid to do the painting badly. So I wanted it to look like the real person because he wanted to be modeling in the studio. Uh, I mean, we could have done it much easier just taking a photo and then I could try to get something out of that. And um, I chose a very bad position. That means that, in fact, I had to... It was a big painting, so I had to look at Her Majesty, crawl up the ladder, remembering what I saw before, and try to paint that. So uh, there was a lot of correction all the time because I had different perspectives all the time. But uh, the Queen told me that I shouldn't take care of her. Uh, she liked to look at me working, seeing how I um, did the show. And uh, I had this idea because uh, the best painting in the world is Las Meninas in Prado in Madrid, where Velasquez did some very tricky thing about the perspective. In fact, we are standing having the eyes of the Queen and King, and that was very daring in those days to put normal people in the position of the magisters. And uh, the King in those days must have liked the idea of letting them in. And I saw I must do some little tricky thing, so it's not this official painting with the majesty, with this order hanging on her shoulder. There must be something telling another story. So, first of all, we discussed the place, both the place where it should hang and the place we could put in as the scenography for the painting. And that was a garden that meant a lot for the Queen. And then I told the idea that I wanted to be, you know, like those old paintings, that everything looked like... In old paintings, um, everything very often in portraits looks like a set. And I said, I would like to make some kind of set, you know, like a Technicolor plastic set like the modern world. And um, I didn't know how to do it, but I had this basic idea. And then the most funny part of making that painting was, in fact, that I painted, there was a square. She was holding a square in the middle of the canvas, like it was a painting or a block of paper or whatever. And that was open for Her Majesty because Her Majesty is painting herself. So I said, this is for you, this space. Because, of course, uh, you yourself have to show your own painting. So I had one day enjoying sitting in the sofa looking at Her Majesty. And she wanted it to be painted the other way around, upside down. So I have to turn around this very huge painting. And um, that made me make a stupid joke when it was shown for the first time because I should make a small speech for the press and the Queen. And I told about that day and I said, the Queen wanted the painting uh, upside down. So I had two possibilities. Either I turned the Queen around <laughs> or I turned the canvas around. <laughs> and you know, it just wasn't planned at all. It just 
because I was fucking nervous of that. So just saying it, I was like, my God, am I allowed to do this? <laughs> but I did. <laughs> and she was laughing. <laughs> and so we turned the canvas around. <laughs> well, it sounds like a truly collaborative experience. Yeah, it was. Also scary. I mean, it's very scary to make a public portrait because you are very bound, I think, because... You have to be very respectful for the person. You also have to be respectful for the people looking at it later on. So it has to kind of look like that person. It can have degrees, you know, because it can be totally looking or it can be three-dimensionally looking right. Because, I mean, looking at a person in life is a very different look from looking at a photo. I mean, a photo is a one-eye observation. And if you're looking with two eyes... And a body that is moving and your body is moving. I mean, you get a 3D information. And that is what you have to translate into two-dimensional on the canvas. So it was always... I mean, Picasso must have been very much aware of that. How Brack, because they kind of did a whole style, you know, testing out, showing a thing from more than one side, because we know more about this thing than we can see here. So they tried in Cubism to show those things too. And you always do that in a way when you are having a live model. I mean, people get to just try to put some fruits on the table and try to look at it. I mean, it's very complicated. Much easier if you've got a photo because then you can measure. But you can't hardly measure because you're moving all the time. Your eyes is focusing and disfocusing. and mm. But very interesting. Mm. And you don't look at a painting like a photo. So very often my paintings look like Czechoslovakian stamps in books because they're made for two eyes. They're made of two eyes and they're made for two eyes. So if you're standing in front of those very big paintings, your eyes is moving. You never look at the whole painting at the same time. Hmm. So uh, that's something about the language too. Well, Mikael, you're endlessly fascinating with your reflections, and I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. I had a chance to get away from the studio today. (laughs) Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu, and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram, and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.